welcome to another episode of the Logic and Larry podcast. I am your host, Larry K. It's great to be back with you guys. It's been quite a while and I understand that. So much has happened in the news. I wanted to just sit down and talk to you a little bit. Everything I say in this podcast is strictly my personal opinion as a private citizen. This is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing I say is in an official capacity or reflects the official position or opinion of any other entity or any other person. Just me talking to you as a private citizen about my private thoughts. Guys, I've been, I gotta be honest, a little bit uh, socially drained as of late. As we approach these dog days of summer, June flew by, and June is coming to an end, and we are about to embark on our July, August, humid, sunny, hopefully beach-laden, pool-laden, or for those less fortunate, summer city-laden nights and afternoons. And I've just found myself drained, man. I'm drained by politics. I'm drained by the news. I'm drained by so many things. I'm drained by my own approach toward middle age. And it's been on my mind quite a bit. But here we are. And we are going to discuss the news of the day. I told you I wouldn't back off the Russia-Ukraine stuff. And I'm not going to. We saw the head of the Wagner Group, Prigozhin, very esteemed military leader in Russia, turn his forces toward Moscow and begin marching on Mas- Moscow. And it was a huge surprise and a shock to everyone. We don't fully know all the inner workings of what occurred or why it occurred. We have no idea. All we know is that it's a significant development. And although apparently a, pre- a peace was brokered, Apparently by the Belarus uh, president who, you know, there's some speculation that because he's in Putin's right pocket and Putin's trying to legitimize him and make him seem more, you know, formidable and more of a figure that perhaps Putin kind of propped that story up and perhaps he wasn't the foremost uh, leader on that negotiated peace. Perhaps Putin had a more direct involvement, but of course... Putin's not going to say he had direct involvement because if Putin actually had to get to the table with somebody who was trying to essentially stage a coup in Russia, that would severely call into question Putin's legitimacy and Putin's strength, right? Because Putin wants to maintain that he is strong enough to withstand any type nonsense like that. And he wants it to look like Prigozhin was running scared himself and dare not cross Putin. So if he makes it look like another president kind of brokered the peace to save Prigozhin's butt instead of vice versa, it retains Putin's power. So we really don't know. And I'm sure uh, intelligence agencies and I'm sure individuals whose job it is to gather that intelligence are currently gathering it. And perhaps people in, you know, with access to more classified documents than we have may currently know that information, but the general public does not have that information. Regardless, it's it's worth noting. It's worth noting that, you know, at the in beginning of this war, it was widely 
understood or widely accepted that Russia would just walk in to Ukraine, take Ukraine over relatively easily. And I think Putin thought this because I think Putin overestimated Russian sympathizers within the Ukrainian government. He thought that once Russia invaded and gathered significant military victories, that insiders within the Ukrainian government would then move toward a coup or toward a takeover of sorts within the Ukrainian government. Uh, But that's not what happened, unfortunately, for Russia and fortunately for the Western world. Now, intriguingly, at the beginning of this whole, you know, Russia-Ukraine thing, um, there were several people, especially within the the MAGA Trump camp, who, you know, were poo-pooing our support for Ukraine, who were skeptical of supporting Ukraine, who were, you know, so aggravated that we were sending military aid and money to Ukraine, and, you know, basically saying it was futile and why do it? And, you know, Trump is Putin's cheerleader, so... He's over in that camp, too. Trump has been trying to undermine NATO. And let me just try to explain something without going too far on a tangent here. It's fascinating that we've gotten to this juncture with the Russia-Ukraine war. First of all, you've got to understand something, right? You've got to understand that Western society and the Western world, and that includes Western Europe, the United States, Australia, you know, Japan, several other nations, our way of life, you know, if you think you're struggling with inflation or you thought you were struggling when there were supply chain deficiencies or something of that nature, anything of that nature, you know, you you have another thing coming if you think that Russia encroaching on you know, Western sovereignty. And make no mistake, Ukraine is the easternmost front of Western civilization and Western sovereignty in that region of the world. Russia encroaching on that is an issue. And the reason Russia was even doing that is because we were, in essence, encroaching on Russia by being so friendly with Ukraine and having a Ukrainian administration that was so friendly to the West. Now, this is all geopolitical reality, right? None of this stuff is uh, something that's not accessible or not known or that there's any ambiguity as to. I mean, everybody knows this is what happens. But the world is a harsh reality. And just because Russia, you can see their side of it, of course you understand why they don't want the West encroaching into Ukraine with a, a Western-friendly Ukrainian regime. But we are in the West, and for our way of life to continue to thrive, and for us to have, you know, continue to, to have a, a healthy economy and healthy world trade and, and be healthy leaders in the geopolitical stage, which is struggling anyway, mind you. You know, we need to maintain our power and thwarting Russian advances into the old Soviet bloc is probably a smart thing to do. And if you're an American citizen, you should probably take interest in that and understand that it's in America's interest to stop Russia from invading Ukraine. Now, all that being said, you got to understand this interesting dynamic playing out domestically with our political structure currently, right? Donald Trump and his administration were notoriously hostile to the NATO alliance and were notoriously friendlier than they should have been toward dictators 
who are hostile toward the West and toward the American way of life, namely Vladimir Putin and namely King Jong-un. So, you know, this odd thing that has taken root in the United States where the MAGA crowd, and you, you really can't call them Republicans anymore because there's really nothing in the traditional sense of the Republican Party as we've known it for the last 30 or so years uh, that that is in any way related to them other than this, you know, working class white grievance stuff. But even the working class element of it has kind of uh, is kind of a new phenomenon. So they're really not the Republican Party in the way we've come to conceptualize the Republican Party over the last generation. Uh, and, and that's OK, because political parties are known to switch, you know, which they're in our country. Political parties are just very large umbrellas. We only have two of them. And so these two very large umbrellas are constantly swapping and evolving, and they are changing these smaller constituencies within them. So, for instance, the progressive constituency used to be a strongly Republican uh, constituency during the abolition movement and the muckraking movement, those types of things, the progressive constituency has solidly moved to be under the Democratic umbrella, right, in the last generation. Conversely, uh, the Dixiecrats, Southern Democrats who were, you know, aggrieved, so they thought in terms of the ruling class, aggrieved by the industrialists in the North, aggrieved by bankers uh, in the Northeast who wanted this agrarian freedom and were normally advocates and proponents of segregation, of Jim Crow, etc. That constituency of Americans has moved decidedly under the Republican umbrella in the last generation. Now, you can see that clearly when you look at the red and blue states and the way they vote. You can see that these political parties have almost swapped you know, positions and have swapped a lot of constituencies within their umbrellas. But the current MAGA party is not really the Republican Party that we've come to recognize over the last 30 or 40 or 50 or so years. The MAGA Party certainly encompasses those same Dixiecrats, those Southerners, um, those hostile toward uh, other, right? Other, I'll just say, you know, but they're not the same as the Republican Party. Nonetheless, and it's indicative in foreign policy, right? Because the Republican Party for most of my life have been these war hawks, these defense hawks uh, who have been very concerned with international relations and who have really taken an offensive, you know, the best defense is a good offense type mentality where we are going to position ourselves strategically around the globe and we are going to involve ourselves strategically around the globe to solidify our position as a world power. And people don't understand, you know, many people rail against the military industrial complex, those things. You can have an opinion one way or the other. I'm not here to, to, to get into that. But there is, you know, it's not just for the sake of war or just for the sake of military spending. These military strategic positions are protecting other American assets, whether we like it or not. And of course, you know, 
the rich in the U.S. do benefit from it, but as does the middle class, as does the poor class in the United States, who is still, you know, pound for pound, much, much more wealthy than the working class in many developing countries, which is something I'll get to a little later on another subject today. But anyway, this MAGA constituency has really taken the position since the inception of the Russia-Ukraine conflict that... We should not be defending Ukraine. Ukraine is, Ukraine is, you know, corrupt. Russia's going to walk all over them anyway. And, you know, what Republicans always do, and whether you're talking about, you know, modern Republicans, but they've been doing this. MAGA and Republicans do this. You know, whether you're talking about immigrants, whether you're talking about foreign spending, you know, whether you're talking about refugees, whatever you're talking about, there's always some counter. Well, why aren't we spending on the homeless here? You know, but then when we go to spend on the homeless here, then it's all, what are you, why aren't we spending on the vets? Why? They just don't want to spend money on certain things. So they conveniently find this other angle to try to attack it, to make themselves look righteous. Like in reality, they really do care. They just care about a different constituency. It's normally nonsense. The party for a long time has just cut spending spending everywhere and hasn't taken care of anybody. But long story short, the MAGA party, because of Trump's leadership, because of Trump's undermining of NATO and Trump's hostility toward our Western allies and Trump's embracing of people like Putin, have taken on this mentality that why are we supporting Ukraine, blah, 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 blah. It also ties in with this whole Hunter Biden. The Bidens are intertwined with Ukraine nonsense, which also ties into Trump. Initially, if you recall, uh, his one of his impeachment issues was that he threatened uh, Zelensky, threatened Ukraine, that unless they investigated the Bidens, he was not going to give them aid. You see, so this this whole Trump anti-Ukraine thing goes back to a personal issue with Trump, which is what most of the issues that his supporters embrace go back to. For some reason, he has them convinced and they follow him like a cult and anything that benefits him personally, they'll all line up lockstep with. Um, so they've been against it, but it's interesting because if you, if you pay attention, a lot of these MAGA people and Trump himself have been saying since the inception of this war that, you know, if Trump was in office, we wouldn't have this conflict. If Trump was in office, we wouldn't have a World War III risk. If Trump was in office, you know, this none of this conflict would be going on. Well, they're probably somewhat correct in that Trump was, as long as Trump was in office, he was giving Putin everything he wanted. As long as Trump was in office, he was undermining and attacking NATO from within. As long as Trump was in office, he was undermining and attacking our Western allies and alienating them from within. As long as Trump was in office, Russia and Putin's position was strengthening. So of course Russia wouldn't feel backed into a wall and feel the need to invade Ukraine while Trump was in office because why rock the boat? Trump's giving you everything you want. You can operate with impunity, basically. But when Biden gets in office and he's a strong NATO ally and he's a strong supporter of Ukraine and the Ukrainian government is a strong proponent of the West at that time and sentiment within Ukraine is growing more and more pro-Western, well, of course, now Russia feels the need to lash out because they're backed into a corner. And so that's why this conflict started. But I find it interesting that there was so much naysaying about spending money in Ukraine, about helping Ukraine and bolstering their defenses. Yet look at this. 
We are over a year into this conflict, and Ukraine is launching counter-offensives, pushing Russians out of several cities, has them on the fringes of the territories associated and affiliated with Ukraine, and is pushing them out as we speak. And not only that, but Vladimir Putin is suffering internal internal turmoil from Prigozhin and his own military leaders that are showing some serious vulnerabilities in his leadership and some serious vulnerabilities in his armor. If you're an American, that's good news. That's good news. And so it's just interesting how, you know, these sentiments about the Ukraine-Russia conflict have broken down, yet we are seeing a lot of good news out of Ukraine that's good for us and good for the West, yet people still just have never understood how to approach that conflict or really what's entailed in the domestic political considerations of an international conflict like that. But speaking of access to confidential and and classified documents, speaking of Donald Trump, we had uh, an interesting, interesting, to say the least, bit of news over my little last break from the podcast. We had an indictment handed down by the United States Department of Justice, um, and it's going to be domiciled in in the District of South Florida in Miami. Um, So... That was an interesting choice. It was uh, Special Prosecutor Jack Smith who had been appointed by Merrick Garland to investigate the Trump documents case. And I'm going to do my best to, you know, explain it as best I can, as balanced as I can without actually delving into, you know, the minutia of every aspect of the indictment. Um, But he was appointed by Merrick Garland at the time that Trump declared his candidacy for president in 2024. Many speculate that Trump declared his candidacy because uh, he wanted to avoid the investigation by the U.S. Justice Department of Justice and because then he could point his finger and say that this was all a political witch hunt. But the investigation was already going on prior to Trump declaring officially his candidacy for president again. Upon him declaring that, Merrick Garland appointed his special counsel who was going to investigate the accusation and allegation that Donald Trump took classified documents out of the White House when he wasn't supposed to, when they were not properly declassified, and that he kept them in his mansion in Mar-a-Lago and some other documents apparently were in Bedminster, New Jersey. Now, there is a lot of talking points going on that the, you know, based on some dicta in a, in a judicial decision from, I think, the 70s, that the president, you know, has within his purview the ability to classify and declassify documents, and therefore it's mostly in his wheelhouse. Therefore, Trump cannot possibly be accused of wrongdoing here because Trump has the ability and authority to declassify documents on a whim. Now, administratively from a practical standpoint that is somewhat true but there's somewhat you know there's other steps that go through with that some are arguing that just simply by walking out with the documents that counts as trump declassifying them that's not true and at the time trump possessed these documents they were not declassified number one and number two 
Trump did not have the authority at that point to declassify them anymore because he was no longer president. So Trump was hoarding classified documents without authorization improperly in his private residences. That much we know. Now, the, the question and issue of the criminality here is an interesting one. And if you look at the indictment and you read into the indictment and you actually pay attention to the proofs that were laid forth and look, you know, Bill Barr will tell you this. He said it. Bill Barr, who was very loyal to Trump, will tell you this. Chris Christie will tell you this. Asha Hutchinson will tell you this. Many, many Republicans will tell you this. MAGA people just don't want to hear it because they've, you know, designed their minds to filter out anything that's unfavorable to their idol, which is Donald Trump. But the fact is, if the state can prove, and I don't want to say the state, I mean the federal government, if the federal government can prove these allegations, Trump is in deep trouble. And based on the indictment with pictures, with dates, with text messages, with audio recordings, it seems painfully painfully so that Trump did in fact violate the law in a number of ways and that's why he was indicted this is his second indictment now I went over the first indictment with you and we discussed the first indictment and I and I'm still anxious to see what the district attorney in Manhattan actually does and how he goes about his case because I thought that was an interesting case based on the statute the enhancement to the statute and the underlying facts of it but when it comes to this indictment, what people have to understand is that the Department of Justice did not simply just wake up the day after Trump moved out of the White House and say, you know what, I bet in his belongings and memoirs and memories that he took with him, I bet there's some classified documents and it's an accident. Let's go after him and prosecute him for some basic thing that everybody does. That's not what happened. What happened was the Department of Justice and the National Archives got word, first the National Archives got word, that Trump was in possession of a number of classified documents that really should not be in the possession of a now private citizen in a private residence. And they sought to get those documents back. Now, if you paid attention, other officials had classified documents in their private residences, which is not good either. Nobody should. And they had a fraction of what Trump had, but they, like him, had it. Now, what happened was the National Archives, eventually the Justice Department, they asked Trump for these documents back. They said, you know, you're not supposed to have them. You got to return them to us. And that goes for Trump. That goes for Biden. That goes for everybody. And, you know, sometimes things are not enforced properly and things can get sloppy. And that's maybe what happened with these various public officials having some amount of, you know, classified documents. Sometimes it takes one person doing something to shed light on an overall situation. I think Trump having the documents helped to shed light on a lot of other people having documents. And therefore, the FBI asked Trump and everybody else, you got to give back the documents. Now, here's where the crimes come in. And people are not paying attention to this. People are acting like they just charged Trump and let everybody else walk. That's not what happened. They gave everybody a chance, including Trump, to turn the documents back in. Now, this is where obstruction of justice comes in with Trump. When they asked Trump to return the documents that he had, he lied about having the documents 
he had another individual working for him who's also indicted and other employees move documents to hide them from his own lawyer because lawyers by the way have to be candorous they have we have a duty of candor to the court so if a lawyer knew that trump had classified documents in his residence but he was not saying so and he was lying about it the lawyer could not lie to the court the lawyer was not going to lie to the fbi and the lawyer would have to disclose the existence of those documents so trump purposely hid the documents from his own lawyer hid the documents from the fbi hid the documents from the national archives hid the documents from the department of justice willfully and knowingly so you're not allowed to do that and trump blew his chance to just give the documents back and not face criminal charges instead he willfully tried to obstruct justice and hide the documents he also tried to thwart a government activity, and some of that goes to espionage charges. People just assume it's spying, but Trump's purposeful hindrance of the U.S. government goes to that as well. Now, we know that Trump knew the documents were classified, and we know that Trump knew he wasn't supposed to have them because we have an audio recording. An audio recording where Trump himself says to a reporter, and he shows a reporter, by the way, this is classified attack plans, classified attack plans. OK, that means if this were to get out in any way, shape or form that leaders in another country that may be hostile to the United States would gain valuable intelligence on how we might attack them, what kind of weaponry we have, what kind of strategic positions we have around the globe, etc. Trump willy-nilly showed a person without access to classified material, and this is on recording, so this isn't just speculation. This isn't hearsay. This is Trump's own mouth said, this is secret, this is secret, but look, but look, and he shows a reporter these secret plans he shows them willy-nilly shows them and he flat out says i could have de declassified this i could have declassified this but i did not declassify it therefore they are classified he shouldn't have them he shouldn't be showing them to a reporter and he knows all of this because he says it's secret i didn't declassify it so we know he did the crimes. The reason the FBI, and I remember when the FBI performed the raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, he came out and acted like that was political persecution too. He came out acting like, you know, that was just a, a you know, a show of muscle, harassment, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, now we've come to find out via this indictment, We've come to find out that the reason that a federal judge signed a search warrant allowing the FBI to go into the residence and retrieve documents was because Trump was willfully hiding them. And despite their best efforts to get him to willingly give the documents back, he wouldn't do it. So they had to get a search warrant and go in by force and take the documents out. Now, we have pictures, too. 
We've got pictures of documents just thrown in bathrooms. We have text messages of employees saying, like, let's move them to this shower. Let's move them to this bathroom. There are people in and out of Mar-a-Lago, including people with foreign interests, people who are non-governmental actors. And for those out there, apparently, who hate the rich, hate the elite, hate the millionaires and billionaires, whether you're a you know far lefty who hates them or you're a righty who can't stand the elite, guess what? The elite and those people you don't trust and those people you can't stand were in and out of Mar-a-Lago, have access to Mar-a-Lago. They could wander around the premises for all we know. They could have. There's staff there. Trump employs foreign nationals who don't have American citizenship at Mar-a-Lago. This is a fact. Despite all his rhetoric on building a wall, despite all his rhetoric on immigration, Trump employs, and they have it out there where he's putting out employment calls for foreign nationals to work at Mar-a-Lago, they would have had access to these papers. Imagine if somebody, just like these other people, these other quote-unquote whistleblowers out there, took a box or took a stack and scanned it and sent it to a foreign adversary somewhere, giving up strategic American assets internationally. That's not a joke. That's not a political prosecution. That's not a political persecution. That's an actual violation of federal law, and that's a real problem, and that's a heavy security issue. Now, you cannot sit there. You cannot sit there as a Trump supporter. The people who used to chant, lock her up to Hillary Clinton, all because she dared to use a private email server to do some official business. And mind you, they never found her to actually be disclosing any sensitive information or to actually be disseminating anything she shouldn't have been. But simply for using a private email server to conduct official business, they were chanting, lock her up. Well, you can't not be a hypocrite. You can't be a serious human being. You can't be an intellectual person. You can't be a serious thinker and say, lock her up for using an email server, but then turn around and say, Trump purposely hiding classified documents, lying to the FBI, hiding them from his own lawyers, keeping them in an unsecured bathroom, hiring foreign nationals, and showing them willy-nilly to a reporter is all just well and good and fine. You can't seriously do that and that's where Trumpies are starting to run into a lot of problems. And the fact is that this prosecution has a very high likelihood of being successful because the facts and proof is so strong. Now, that being said, in this country, and it's a good thing, you've got to prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous 12-person jury. If that jury is not unanimous, then the case is hung if one person doesn't want to vote guilty then it's not going to be a guilty so we will see what actually happens with this case but this is not this has none of the makings of a political persecution when you look at the facts the facts are clear and you can't be serious about law and order and you can't be serious about national security and you can't be serious about America versus the world if you don't see the problems in what Trump did and you don't understand that it's criminal action. You cannot be. 
So now, you know, people are retreating to, well, not that he didn't do anything, but now that, oh, but what aboutism? What about they didn't do this? What about that? What doesn't negate that Trump did something terrible, that Trump engaged in criminal activity. It doesn't negate that. Just because somebody else did that you also think should be prosecuted doesn't mean that he shouldn't. Okay, so it doesn't absolve you of being a supporter of this guy doesn't absolve you of trying to vote for this guy to be back in the White House and still try to be taken seriously as a thinker. It doesn't. Um, but but we await Trump's legal problems and we, we await the resolution of these legal issues. And, you know, I, I have a really... I, I do think that Trump is going to also be indicted sometime this summer, most likely in Georgia, for his actions leading up to and involving January 6th, specifically his actions in Georgia, where he tried to find additional votes that he did not receive, where he tried to tamper with a free election in Georgia. I think Fonnie Willis is going to wind up indicting him there too. And those charges are much more, you know, plain to see and are, you know, much more, even more of a threat to national security and to our democracy. And I wouldn't put it past the Department of Justice as they're also investigating the uh, January 6th issue and Trump's attempts to overthrow the free election in 2020. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets indicted again by the Justice Department on those charges. So his his legal troubles are just far, far from over. He is going to be inundated with legal troubles, inundated with the prospect of facing prison. And I can tell you something with the Department of Justice, that's federal law. He could pardon himself or an ally of his can pardon him. But if he goes down in New York or in Georgia, those are state jurisdictions and that's state consequences and state sentences. And he cannot pardon himself, nor can any federal official pardon him in those jurisdictions. So it's really going to be interesting to see how Trump's legal issues and challenges shake out. Now that being said, one more issue we'll go through and then we'll hop to a little more current events. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden was charged with tax evasion uh, and other crimes, a gun offense, and he is going to go through a diversionary program and uh, will be held accountable for that in that way. And you see a lot of people out there saying, you know, that that proves there's a double standard because Hunter got a sweetheart deal. Well, first of all, First of all, let's clear the air. Number one, federal prosecutors uh, who serve in districts, i.e. the District of South Florida, the District of Delaware, which is where Biden's being prosecuted, uh, the District of New Jersey, the District of Southern New York, the Eastern New York, you know, different parts of California. Those district federal prosecutors, they have wide discretion and latitude. It's very rare that they have to go all the way up to the, the up the chain to central justice to the attorney general of the United States, who would be Merrick Garland in this situation, to get the authority, you know, to sign a plea deal or to have him craft the plea deal. That's very, very unusual, very unlikely. In this particular case, the U.S. attorney for the District of Delaware, uh, Weiss, was a Trump appointee. He's a Trump holdover, so Trump appointed him. And he doesn't have to go to Merrick Garland to get permission to enter into a plea agreement or to decide 
with his own prosecutorial discretion in his own district, whether he's going to advance something to grand jury or charge it or not, or et cetera. Not only that, but Weiss himself and Garland himself have come out and said that they did not, there was nothing limiting Weiss's ability to do any of those things. And he did not have to check with Garland to make any decisions. So that's first of all. Second of all, uh, You know, there's reporting out there that Trump's lawyers, some of Trump's lawyers in the documents case wanted to reach a plea deal for Trump that might have been seen as a similar type of sweetheart deal where he could plead guilty, but maybe get a diversionary program, maybe get some kind of probation, maybe get a slap on the wrist. They tried to negotiate a deal for Trump. Trump refused. Trump is going down fighting. So Trump hasn't pled guilty. You don't know what the offer could be to Trump to plead guilty because he hasn't pled guilty. Biden agreed to admit what he did was wrong and to take felony convictions on his record. Therefore, he's getting this deal. Somebody with very limited criminal history and this is a kind of a regulatory gun offense mind you this is an offense where you're not supposed to purchase a gun if you have prior issues on your record this wasn't like he was carrying a gun in public you know uh without a license in a state like new jersey or where where he was involved in a shooting or something of that nature where he bought it off the street or whatever this is a little bit different it's a regulatory offense but it's still serious And I'm sure some people have gotten lighter treatment on stuff like this. I'm sure some people have gotten heavier treatment on stuff like this. It varies by jurisdiction. It varies by circumstance. It varies by criminal history. It varies by the ability to rehabilitate. It varies by all kinds of things. And we can have a separate discussion as to whether or not that's fair. But the fact is, Hunter Biden was charged with a crime. He's pleading guilty to a crime. He's going into a diversionary program. Now, yes, if he successfully completes a diversionary program, he's going to get out and they probably will be able to, uh, you know, expunge the record. But that happens every day across this country, too. When people have limited criminal histories, they can enter into diversionary programs. If they get through the diversionary programs, which, by the way, are not easy. Diversionary programs are grueling. They... uh, demand a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of restrictions placed on you. You can't drink. You can't do drugs most times. Your ability to travel is different. You have a a lessened uh, interest in privacy in your own home and your own belongings. They can search you and shake you down whatever they want to see if you have weapons, if you have drugs. And guess what? If you violate the terms of your diversionary program, you could have a permanent record. You could face prison time. There's all kinds of things. So I'm not making a determination, nor do I really have an opinion because I don't know the case well enough. I don't know enough about the inner workings of the District of Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office. I don't know any of those things enough to tell you whether or not the plea deal was a good one or not for the country or for the prosecutors in this case or for Biden. What I can tell you is that the idea that somehow Joe Biden's Justice Department and Merrick Garland is pulling the strings and purposely gave Biden some abnormally sweet deal when Trump isn't getting the same treatment just doesn't add up with the facts. If you look at the actual facts, it just doesn't add up. We don't even know what kind of deal Trump could get. We do know that he could have had a deal and we do know that he could have returned the documents and probably avoided most, if not all of these charges in the first place on this particular case. So, you know, it's just I just want to dispel some nonsense here, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Trump. And by the way, Hunter Biden violated the law. I wouldn't care if they sent Hunter Biden to prison. I wouldn't care if he gets this deal. I don't care. I know Hunter Biden is not the president of the United States. Hunter Biden does not hold an official position. And so if Hunter Biden 
broke the law, he should be prosecuted to the full extent of it. And that's just the fact that the way it is. He negotiated a plea deal for himself. That's his business. I don't think many people on the left are defending it, but you won't find that from me. That's for darn sure. And by the way, if Joe Biden violated the, the law and the president of the United States, Joe Biden violated any of these statutes or this law, or he conspired with his son to break the law, then Joe Biden should be impeached. Joe Biden should be convicted. And Joe Biden, you know, should be criminally prosecuted as well. But until I see the hard evidence, the way I see the hard evidence for Trump in this indictment with pictures, with audio recordings, with text messages, I don't, I'm not going to make that proclamation. When and if I do, I certainly will make that proclamation. And so should you. Nobody should be above the law. Nobody should be treated differently than anybody else. And everybody should be held accountable. And just because somebody over there did something wrong doesn't mean the guy you like should get off. Everybody should be held accountable, plain and simple. And there's really no escaping that. None whatsoever. So we'll see where these legal issues go. Now, the final thing I wanted to touch on today was this... This Titan catastrophe, this Titanic submarine uh, catastrophe, which I think is really, really sad. I wouldn't, maybe it's not a catastrophe because there's only, you know, there's five people that passed, but it's certainly, certainly um, destruction. Certainly destruction. Um, You know, (laughs) these are five human beings who had an interest in science. One individual was a Titanic expert, somebody who was very interested in the Titanic. Somebody else was an entrepreneur who had designed and helped to build this Titan and was charging exorbitant fees to go, you know, underwater to see the Titanic. Then you had a, another wealthy individual who was a, an explorer who, who liked to do these sorts of things. Then you had a a wealthy man and his son, who was only 19, who really had no stake in the game, nothing to do with this. Um, These were human beings. These are human beings who went into the ocean. These are human beings who lost their lives. Um, And and that's a fact. Now, is there a legitimate uh, argument to be made or a legitimate point to be made that when migrants in Europe capsize at sea by the hundreds... Oftentimes, their bodies are never even identified, uh, that no one really speaks or talks about them, that many times they are duped, that their conditions are terrible, that they are forced to make those voyages, unlike these rich people who chose to take this voyage, and that the media and the people do not pay nearly as much attention to those people. Is there a legitimate and valid point to be made there? Yes, there is, right? But I... (laughs) Here's the thing. Everybody, you know, when I talk a lot about consistency, hypocrisy, honesty, there was an article in The New Yorker, and those who know me know I'm an avid reader of The New Yorker. Those who listen to this podcast probably know that as well. I'm constantly sharing articles from that uh, periodical, so you should know I'm into it. Um, I shared an article months ago, months ago. I shared it several times. I talked to people about the article. That in Italy, there was a specific group that was set up 
uh, by somebody who cared about these migrants because, you know, people were losing husbands and kids and then couldn't get death benefits overseas because there was no official death certificate for somebody who died drowning trying to make a treacherous voyage away from conflict in another country. And people in Italy had tried with their own money, with, with private funding, with donations to try to open up a project that would identify as many migrants as possible through DNA, through dental records, etc., so that their families could get some closure, so that their families could get some benefits, so they could move on with their lives, get custody, things like that. I shared the article. I, I talked about it. The New Yorker published a comprehensive article on it. It's it's in the news. But you can't just blame the media for the fact that I don't recall anybody currently making that argument on social media saying, oh, they cared so much about the submarines, but not the migrants. I don't recall any of you talking about the migrants when I was talking about them months ago, when I posted the article, when I wanted to have the conversation, when the New Yorker published it. I don't recall anybody clicking on it, sharing it, engaging with it, raising anything about it. So you can't sit there and now say, oh, why did they pay so much attention to this, but no attention to this? You didn't pay attention to it. You didn't know it until you saw the meme pop up on your on your feed. That's number one. Number two, you know, initially I did think it was only scientists that were lost in this incident. And I was, you know, really vehement that they find them because science and research to me is extremely important. And we should certainly do everything to protect people who put themselves in harm's way for the advancement of human knowledge. Because human knowledge is probably one of the most important things as a species that we can have, right? Then I found out that really only one of them was an actual, like, researcher, and everybody else was kind of having, you know, fun or thought it would be interesting to do. And it changed my perspective a bit about how I felt about it. And that's natural and that's going to happen. But I will stand by and I did say that I thought it was an extremely poor taste and extremely uh, condemnable that individuals were making callous jokes about people while for all we knew, they were literally suffocating in the dark and dying in a tiny cramped space, losing oxygen by the minute and were going to perish as people were joking and laughing at them. Now, my opinion slightly changes now that we know they perished fairly quickly after launch. My opinion slightly changes now that we know they are confirmed deceased because I think humor is important and I think sometimes we don't have a great tolerance for humor when we think it's offensive you know you see doctors engage in humor and if it's caught on video they get into some trouble or some hot water you see comedians make light of situations that people deem are a little too far sometimes uh, but I do think humor is a necessary coping mechanism when tragedies occur when uh, tough difficult situations embrace somebody's lifestyle in the interest of a doctor or something somebody else when societal questions are really oppressive and so serious sometimes humor is a necessary way to discuss those things humor is a necessary way to deal with those things humor is a necessary human aspect of what we do so i don't necessarily take issue with joking about the situation once people have passed I wouldn't personally engage in that type of joking. I don't think it's particularly in good taste, but I don't particularly take issue with it. But I do particularly take issue with people joking about it while somebody is literally going through their last breath miles under the sea. I, I, there's no way around it being in poor taste. 
And it's really not justified. Now, you can do it if you choose, but don't try to justify it. And one of the things I've seen over the last few days are these, you know, these same leftist, you know, wannabe Marxist people who, you know, you're in the American middle class or even the American working class. You have so much money and so many benefits and your lifestyle and quality of life is so much better than most of the actual poverty-stricken people in this world that it's so melodramatic, so hollow, so tone-deaf, and so damn flat-out weak to be sitting there saying, well, why, you know, I laugh at them. Well, guess what? You know, there's a meme going around that, well, they laugh at us when they do their earnings calls and their board meetings. And like, number one, one, you don't even know if any of these people are on a board meeting for any company. You don't know if they've ever had a negative impact on your life. You don't know how they run a company if they do. You don't know how much of their money goes to donate to good causes. You don't know a damn thing about these human beings whatsoever. So stop with this melodramatic crusade nonsense that they're on earnings calls. They're rich billionaires. We're angry. What are you so angry about? Watching this on TV, reading it in your tabloid, and then your the extent of your Marxist activism, the extent of your leftist revolution is to post nonsense memes on the internet. And your way of justifying your bad taste, your tackiness, and your poor form is to go on and try to justify it with this fake proletariat crusade. You sound silly, you are in bad taste, and you should check yourself. Flat out, man. Flat out. Stop trying to justify it. Just say, hey, you know, it kind of was in bad taste, but I thought it was funny. Don't try to justify yourself with some nonsense activism. And by the way, somebody made a good point who was a friend of one of these individuals. They said, look, these people are using their private funds to push the envelope of what technology can accomplish, to push the envelope of where human beings can go. And they were aware of the risks, so don't mourn them. They, they're not claiming. No one's claiming they were unaware. They were aware of the risks. They signed the waiver. They knew they could die. They did die. So they're not asking for sympathy per se. But they're saying the callousness and the way that you assume and presume that they are just terrible people by virtue of their money or their social status and then make callous jokes is absurd because what about, they said, the Wright brothers? The Wright brothers pushed the envelope of flight. We might not be flying anywhere if the Wright brothers hadn't conducted, you know, dangerous experiments and pushed the envelope. Several inventors and pioneers, we learn about Amelia Earhart, all these other people, several pioneers and inventors and innovators had money, had personal wealth, and pushed the limits of technology and their own survival for the advancement of humankind. And I'm not trying to glorify these people because at the end of the day, there were tons of problems with this particular vessel. I wouldn't have got on the vessel. I don't think that the individual, the CEO, uh, was the most careful person, was the most cognizant person of the risks or necessarily necessarily conveyed it properly to everybody who paid him an exorbitant fee to go down there when you have people like James Cameron who has gone substantially further into the sea than this sub went where the Titanic is who has said that this 
project and this particular vessel was ill-equipped, was, you know, really not rated properly, not receiving the proper ratings. There's a lot to say about this voyage and the fact that it probably wasn't a good idea to get in. It probably uh, was risky. It probably wasn't a great move. And some of the guys are probably a little bit callous with their own lives, including the guy who took his young son uh, on this voyage and it cost him his life. And that deserves legitimate criticism. And jokes are okay now that they're gone. And it's all right to, to have a laugh. But don't try to cover up the fact that you were joking about somebody who, for all you knew, was gasping their last breath by, you know, putting on some nonsense argument that it's a proletariat crusade against the wealthy. You don't know a damn thing about these people. And quite frankly, somebody's dollar worth, whether it's zero dollars or five billion dollars, is not indicative of their moral character or who they are as a person. Let's stop generalizing people all the damn time in that way. Okay, and like the end of the day, yeah. Do I think there's inequality in this country? Hell yeah. Do I think there's too many billionaires currently? Hell yeah. Do I think there's too many multimillionaires compared to the middle class and the way it's struggling? Hell yeah. Do I think we need new tax policies to redistribute some of the wealth and make things more equal? Hell yeah. But I'm not going to sit there and try to justify my own poor taste by putting some political crusade on top of it. I mean, do better, people. Do better. But all that being said... All that being said, I will say it was intriguing because, you know, for most of the past, I don't know how many years, I want to say most of the the 2010s, most of the 2010s and now into the early 2020s, we've just had our news cycles and the current events that we're focused on as a society seem to be consistently and constantly focused on you know, some kind of political strife, some kind of violent shooting. And we've talked about that on the show ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go too far into it, but usually by the same type of perpetrator. But nonetheless, it always devolves into the shooting being some kind of political fight or racial fight or et cetera, or some kind of race thing that happened. Everything's always that we're focused on collectively as a society in current events has has been so frequently something tied to racial strife, political strife, social strife of some sort where people have preconceived notions, they have predetermined positions, and there is some binary fight to be had. And therefore, everybody's watching their own news silos and gathering their own news information. Even COVID had this political thing, which it shouldn't. But even COVID had this political uh, nature to it, where we're in our own silos, believing our own things and everything's a fight. Oddly, oddly, I found it oddly, oddly peaceful and oddly a tad bit, dare I say, dare I say, a tad bit encouraging that when for the few days last week, just the few days when we were all focused on the submarine incident, you could put on any mainstream news station and everybody collectively, rather than fighting about some preconceived political, racial or social issue, was simply watching the news And when they had experts on submarines and deep water diving and things, things most people do not admittedly know about. Unlike politics or the law, where everybody thinks they're an expert, which is what leads to all the issues. 
you had in medical too. Everybody knows that too. But deep diving, most people admit, I, I don't really have any knowledge. I didn't have any knowledge. No, most people admitted they didn't have any knowledge. They were genuinely curious about the facts and they were genuinely curious about the news story so that if I put on Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, or my favorite now, News Nation, and I was watching the coverage, it was just person after person giving actual expert factual knowledge and actual people in the public, rather than fighting with each other about what's empirically true and who's right and who's wrong, were actually just absorbing knowledge and all of us were collectively learning and all of us were collectively following a story. And dare I say that for a week, there really wasn't a lot of fighting politically or over the news. There was an actual news story, a fact-based news story, where the news was struggling to cover an actual situation as it happened and, and striving and endeavoring to get us actual legitimate information on the subject so that we could legitimately consume it and legitimately become informed about something that interested the populace. And it was interesting and it shows that our media and us as a society can still have collective interest in things going on in the world and we can still become educated on things we do not know about. We can do it collectively. We can do it in the milliseconds that our common internet and cable uh, abilities allow us to. And we can do it without having our own realities and having our own fighting. Now, you see, at the end, it devolved a little bit into that with the fighting over the jokes or whatever. But that's kind of an ancillary issue. That's whether or not you could joke about it. A, you can have your own opinion. That's just my opinion. And I think it's silly that you're covering it up with some crusade. But you're free to have your own opinion. Whatever. There's no right answer to that. I'm just saying what I think. But... When it comes to the facts of the situation and the facts of deep sea diving, we all just consumed reality and didn't fight about it. And it does show we can do it. Maybe there's a time, maybe there's a time in our future where we are back to that, where the news is reporting on interesting issues factually, and we can actually focus on it. I don't know that that's gonna happen right around the corner, but it showed it's possible. And the reprieve from the political strife was interesting terrible that it cost five people's lives to get us there and terrible that we're arguing now about them being terrible people and we don't even know them because people want to make generalizations and, and act foolishly but i found it interesting rest in peace to those five souls and i thought it was also interesting that the titanic a story involving the titanic is still still in our news cycle all, you know, over a hundred years later, the Titanic is still a point of interest in this society. That's how impactful that that ship sinking is. Hundred years ago, it sank, and that was the biggest news story then. But a hundred years, over a hundred years later, it's still one of the biggest news stories because it's such an impactful, cataclysmic uh, societal event. I imagine things like uh, 9/11 will will take on that nature as well. And 100 years from now, who knows what we'll be talking about. But time is precious and life is precious. And so those five people's life and time was precious, whether you like it or not. Whether you think their life should be less valued because they have more financial value than you, which is an odd way to conceptualize things anyway, especially for people who claim to be fighting for the lowest common denominator and fighting for those most in need. It's kind of odd to devalue a life so quickly, right? 
but it reminds us how fleeting life is. It reminds us how fleeting time is. And it reminds us that we should be constantly seeking out knowledge, constantly adhering to reality and logic, and most of all, constantly engaging in dialogue with one another while we're here and while we have the ability to do it. And that's why I engage in dialogue with you here on Logic and Larry. And guys, I got to tell you, I have plans for my podcast future. And it's going to entail some changes. And it's not going to happen right now because I'm working on so many things. And like I said, I've been just drained in a lot of ways. But I'm getting through some creative projects. And then there are going to be some changes to my podcast future here. And I will make those announcements when the time comes. Uh, But we are well on our way to 75 shows, and it's been quite a journey with you guys. And so I look forward to the next installment. We will have some guests on soon. I promise I'll get live again soon. Uh, Maybe not consistently, but I will get live. I'll get on live again soon. Until then, though, make sure, you know, you're enjoying your summer. You're spending time with your family and friends. You're appreciating life and your time because it is fleeting. And as it thunderstorms outside here in downtown Newark and the rain pours down, I'm grateful for nature, grateful for hearing that thunder. I'm grateful for the warmth and the humidity because it's another notch in the cycle as the world turns. And I'm, I'm grateful for all of that. I'm grateful for all of you who listen. I'm grateful for the fact that I have the ability to report on this news. And I'm grateful I've been afforded uh, the platform from you guys to, to speak to you about it. So those of you who I will see soon during the summer, I look forward to breaking bread with you, toasting with you and celebrating uh, and enjoy your summer. I'll be back during the summer, uh, but enjoy the 4th of July that's coming up if I don't talk to you before then. And as more events come, pay attention and then wait for Logic and Larry to drop because I may not touch on it the day it occurs, but I will touch on it. And until then, just stay logical and stay spreading the good word. Later, guys.